this week in cyberspace. Yes, indeed. It's the scandal that's rocking the climate movement. The president of COP28 doesn't believe in climate science. Videos have emerged from a couple of weeks ago featuring Sultan al-Jabbar saying that he hasn't seen any evidence to prove that reducing fossil fuels will bring down carbon emissions, nor any blueprints for how to get to 1.5 degrees, the accepted target for the UN Climate Summit since the Paris Agreement in 2015. As 2023 goes down as the hottest year on Earth, will the International Conference fail in its mission to deliver any meaningful results in Dubai? Brett Solomon, what do these latest developments mean? Well, there's a few developments, actually. There's the video of him saying that that the climate, that reducing... Uh, phasing out fossil fuels will not actually really lead us to 1.5 degree or lower temperature rises. But also there's this, um, this leak of documents which are his talking points where he's using the conference itself as a platform to do business. He's got, like I think, 30 country talking points, including with China, about doing gas and oil exploration, including in Australia, I will point out. Um, and so, you know, it just beggars belief, right? Mm, it, it so does. I mean, you know, ha- we knew this was going to happen, didn't we? We, you and I, we, <laughs> we predicted this months ago um, when we did, did our, our episode yeah. COP28 in a petro state. Yeah. Like, how ridiculous is that in the first place? And then to appoint the president of COP28, uh, this oil baron, um, who who is a climate denier, it turns out. Yeah, I mean, he's tried to kind of deflect that and he's come out real strong in a press conference this morning um but it just like it just doesn't ring true and i think the thing that we need really need as you say is like we need to keep temperature rises under one and a half degrees and the only way that that's going to happen is through the phase out like the end of use of fossil fuels i mean that is the solution that's the key solution Uh, and if you've got the chair of the whole conference not actually believing that then you know it raises puts a lot more pressure i think on governments like hopefully like australia to like stand up which you know they haven't really done um president biden is not there at the conference is the pope uh, because i think the pope was going to go in king charles the third as king well Charles third is there the pope isn't but the pope himself actually released a statement yesterday saying that um calling for an end of, to to fossil fuels um you know given that there's so much renewable energy available to us one good thing that came out of this last couple of days is that a hundred countries have signed up to this pledge of ensuring that renewable energy capacity triples by 2030 uh, so that's a good step forward. Sultan al-Jaba, he is also the head, of, as well as being the head of Abu Dhabi's uh, or the United Arab Emirates' biggest oil company, state-owned oil company. Mm. He's also the head of a renewables company. Is that just kind of a, a greenwashing side gig? Look, if you look at people like, you know, Andrew Forrest, um, Twiggy. Let's look at Twiggy. Let's have a good look at Twiggy because he sailed into Dubai on what was supposed to be an ammonia-fueled tanker uh, to deliver, you know, iron ore to to the world. Um, He's turned into quite the activist, hasn't he? In fact, I think the the tanker, though, was ultimately fueled by diesel. Well, it was the only way that they would let him in. And I think the point that he was trying to make is that 
that the shipping sector needs to, and the ports need to recognise that ammonia, or what he calls green ammonia, which is the combination, I think, of hydrogen and nitrogen, um, which powers these ships, these massive tankers, need to be allowed into ports. At the moment, they're banned, and that's why he had to shift to diesel in to order get in there. to get in. Um, I was actually having a look at the emissions that um, the shipping industry is responsible for in terms of, like, you know, global emissions. It's 3%, so it's pretty significant. Um, the 2%, is the airline in- industry, uh-huh. and 1% are the data centres. Oh, I was going to ask you, because, you know, this week in cyberspace, we like to look at, you know, the internet, the online space, and how much it actually emits as a sector, 1%. Yeah, it's 1%. And it's also doubled over the last eight years as well. So you can kind of see like how significant, so if you think about these data centers, the image is these massive warehouses. Banks of computers. Banks and banks of servers, Mm. floor to ceiling, lots of lights flashing. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sucking up huge amounts of energy and the energy that they're using, very few of them are um, using renewable energy. So you've got 1% of global emissions coming from the energy suck from all of these servers that we're all using to power our technologies. That's going to triple and quadruple over time because when you think about some of those very intensive computational um, processes like AI or Bitcoin mining, then you've got a, a situation where you know maybe data centers are going to overtake airlines, the air industry overtake shipping if they <laughs> take on you know green ammonia, um, and 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 very little awareness around that. Because Twiggy Forrest, and for those of you listening who don't know who he is, Andrew Forrest, he is a big uh, mining magnet in Australia. He was formerly a champion of green hydrogen. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, suspicion around that because, you know, creating green hydrogen from fossil fuels, Mm. it, it doesn't really solve the problem. It has to be made from renewables. Does green ammonia come from renewables? I think what the what it requires is that the, when the process is happening, that renewable energy is used yeah. in order to create the process, yeah. the, the bringing together the, the, the two. So when that happens, you do kind you of come down to a carbon green, neutral you, but I, look, fuel. I'm, I'm me no expert. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like a, I'm not an expert on um, green ammonia, but, but one of the things that I think we are seeing at Um, COP28 and all over the world is this idea which we've touched on before around techno-solutionism is that like we're still going to emit um, fossil fuels, we're still use fossil fuels, we're still going to um, emit carbon but we're going to come up with these technologically you know splendiferous solutions that will allow allow us to capture and store carbon you know uh, in a way that doesn't affect emissions. Yeah, well, carbon capture and storage is very questionable at the moment, isn't it? It's not a solution to bring uh, down emissions. Uh, again, I'm not I'm not an expert on it, but the, from what I've read, it's clear that it's still like it is not the answer. You know that that and there are other there's definitely mechanisms, other I think technological um, endeavours that can be very useful in reducing emissions. So, for instance, on things like you know, energy efficiency, like all of the appliances that we use, um, you know, have in, in many countries have an energy efficiency rating. That's specifically designed to reduce the amount of um, electricity that's required and therefore the amount of, you know, if it's coal-fired 
<laughs> um, electricity you know generation than to reduce the amount of coal that's used um, so I think that there's there are lots of tech solutions but we need to be really careful and cop 28 is I'm sure full of snake oil <laughs> <laughs> well tell us about um, the, the the fossil fuel lobbyists who are at this conference too because there's a huge amount of people there pushing their wares and the president would be very interested in them because he's speaking notes that were revealed by the BBC reporters yeah. um, showed that he was in meetings with all sorts of countries like uh, you know Latin America's largest uh, oil and gas processing company, Braxum. Um, you know, this is yeah. <laughs> this seems well, to be got, a conflict of interest. So, <laughs> I mean, actually, you know, to come back to it, it is a conflict of interest because the UN framework under which the the COP twenty eight, the meeting of the parties or the, um, the this meeting that's taking place, um, it has certain rules, and one of the rules is the chair needs to be independent. Um, and but, par- impartial, and impartial, which he hardly is, just and, given and, his background. And, you know, you mentioned all of the lobbyists. Well, of course there are lobbyists at COP28. Um, you know, there's 2,500 people who are registered, connected to the oil, coal and gas industry, um, which is four times as many who were there last year at COP27 in Shamos Sheikh in Egypt. And, and But just before we sort of, you know, shake our head at that, one of the things that's good about that is that there's a greater transparency that's required in this year's COP28. So people need to reveal more information about where they're coming from. Um, but certainly, you know, what we're seeing here is this, what we would like to see really, Neil, and we've talked about this last week and very, you know, in a very concerned tones, which is, you know, if you have the, uh, the oil and gas and coal lobby on one side, you need to have the climate activists and environmental defenders on the other side. And this is what's not happening to the extent that we would want to see at COP28 because of those rules around protest, because of um, banning protests, um, because of people's fear that the UAE is a surveillance state, um, because of the concerns that people have entering the country with their devices, etc. And so, you know, we don't, we're not getting that balancing out. We're getting very much a... The concern is that we're very much getting the voice of the industry as opposed to the voice of the community. So COP28 kicked off last Thursday. It uh, what, what kind of protests have we seen so far? There's been a couple of protests about the Gaza. situation in Gaza. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not necessarily about, um, you know, climate action. Yeah, so there's, as far as I've, what I've read and the, from my intel, is there have been a few smaller protests. There was the one on Gaza, um, nothing major. So. Basically, you know, there's this designated zone uh, in the green zone, which incidentally, as far as I understand, is subject to UAE law. Now, you can be imprisoned for life uh, for a protest that um, destabilizes public security. So, you know, this is a very much a chilling effect. Um, there is a little spot in the website that, um, you know, if you want to get authorization, because a lot of this is about like, you can protest if it's authorised, um, but you know you have to put in all of this information. There's actually a form with a drop-down list of like the type of protest or the type of in activity that you would like to get authorised. Um, from what I can tell, very very little. I mentioned I think that there's 90,000 delegates there, so who knows what's happening on the fringes and in the edges, but certainly no big protest that you would see if this was taking place in a democratic state. So the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is COP, 
mm-hmm. 20, uh, 20, 28 or COP. The framework that, yeah. The framework. That sits underneath COP28 or on the yeah. top. Yeah. It says, it says, yeah, as you mentioned, the cardinal principle for COP presidents and their teams is the obligation of impartiality and that if any president of COP tries to bring a particular interest, including commercial interest, that could mean the failure of, uh, of COP. Do you think it's going to fail? Because, I mean, of what we've seen so far, these side deals with the, the president of, of COP28 meeting with all sorts of mm. uh, leaders of oil companies in different countries, do you think it's you going know, to have is, any meaningful what is outcome? Su- what is success? And, you know, we've talked about this before now about multilateralism, like, you know, what happens when you put 200 states together to try and come to an agreement um, in this polarised world? You know, it's almost impossible even on a topic which is you know, not contentious like like climate change. Um, I think that there's definitely, you know, a much greater w- awareness of the issue and there's definitely an economic incentive for companies and states to invest in renewable energies. I think populations are mobilised around this. But at the same time, you know, the economies are shrinking and when economies shrink, people invest in whatever they can and com- countries and governments invest in whatever they can in order to you know ensure economic growth which is you know an, a larger issue at the kind of the core of the sort of the source of the problem but um i you know I, let's see what happens i mean i think that we are on the precipice of a climate catastrophe we've seen it in you know, every person listening has got some experience of climate change now. There's this new fund that's being created, for instance, which is not about adaptation anymore. It's about loss and damage, i.e. there is no recovery from this point where there's been, you know, massive floods or populations that have had to move, um, climate refugees, etc. Like, there's a new fund for that, um, which is an interesting development. Other governments who can afford it, like the US and Australia and, and others, um, going to contribute to it. Are China and India, who are now very large economies, also going to contribute to funds to deal with some of those worse, um, kind of more free, um, you know, egregious breaches as a result of climate crisis? Who knows, Neil? I think that um, you know, from the tech perspective, I uh, would definitely caution against this idea about tech solutionism definitely concerned about the role of the data centers and the amount of emissions that they're creating and also we haven't really touched on this but the way in which disinformation spreads online and the way in which you know the UAE and others are using the PR machine to get their message across when really the message needs to be an end to fossil fuels and keeping us below one and a half degrees. So there's one week to go. It, it, you know, we'll we'll look at it again next Tuesday. I think we should as a as a kind of a follow up, um, just a sort of <laughs> post mortem, um, to see what actually has happened and whether um, Sultan Al Jabba has you know Resigns. met has resigned <laughs> met his fate. <laughs> he has met his fate, um, or indeed has he had his kind of um, meetings with uh, Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, where he was to tell them there is no conflict between the sustainable development of any country's natural resources and its commitment to climate change. I mean, these notes were obviously prepared by his com- the company he heads up, but um, he really has put himself under the bus as far as uh, any credibility in this space. Yeah, I think that's totally right now. And, you know, what we need, what we do need is like factual information and we need transparency and we need government and company accountability. 
True facts. True facts. Whoa. Okay. Well, uh, let's keep watching this week and see how this drama. I mean, it's all, almost as great as the, the, um, the, uh, the AI soap, soap. <laughs> the AI soap opera, isn't it? Um, we'll check in again next week. Brett Solomon, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Neil.